So thank you for those uh, very kind words of introduction, affirmation. Actually, and thank you, Nancy. It's great. You're gone already. She moved already to Albuquerque. Uh, but I wanted to thank Nancy for being so involved with Agape and taking the initiative with Joshua and Joanne, our workers there. Um, Agape is actually one of our partner ministries. Our organization is actually Migrants Hope, and Deanna and Rebecca are our board members of Migrants Hope in Hong Kong. And we have a number of ministry partners here around Beijing. One is Agape. But I'm not here to speak about that this morning. Uh, we've had a couple of very good messages, James. I really enjoyed your message, the short one, on abiding in Christ and Robin, uh, about being a child of God. So we've been affirmed already, and we've heard the word of the Lord. So I, part of me wants to say, let's just stop here and let those messages absorb in. Um, but we are going to look at another one this morning, the text that was just read to us from the book of Ephesians. And so I'd like to speak from that this morning. Um, I don't need to introduce myself now, do I, Phyllis? John just said something, so that's good enough. The book of Ephesians actually has two halves. Uh, the first half describes God saving us, hopeless dead people like us, and then forming us into a new family that's called the church. This is a thing that we're part of. In the second half of the book, starting in chapter 4, Paul exhorts this new family with how they actually live the Christian life. And in chapter 4, what he does is he, do, he gives us three therefore statements, and that's kind of where you can pin this discipleship training material in chapter 4 on, these fourth therefore statements. The first is in 4.1, where he uh, talks about our attitude. Our attitude is to be one of being humble, patient, and forbearing. So the first response to this great work of salvation that we've received through, through Christ, in, uh, by God in, through Christ is in our attitudes humble, patient, and forbearing. Secondly, in 4.17, he addresses our thinking. He says, don't think like you used to think, but now be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Learn to develop a new thought life. That's the second therefore. And then the third therefore, which is the one we're going to look at today, addresses our speech. And here Paul actually starts getting into the nitty-gritty of the Christian life. So not something as nebulous as attitude, which is kind of hard to, for us to figure out sometimes, or even our thoughts, because we often don't even know what we're thinking ourselves. But speech become, with speech, this topic becomes very practical. Our practice as Christians is always rooted in what we believe. I saw something on Facebook the other day. I'm a Facebook stalker. I'm not much of a Facebook contributor. And when I was stalking the other day, I saw this um, sign that was put up, one of those little trendy coffee shop signs that you see on chalkboards. And it went something like this. It's not what you believe, but, what, but how you behave that makes you a better person. Not what you believe, but how you behave that makes you a better person. And I thought about that, and I thought, well, there's probably a lot of truth to that. But as Christians, we believe that how we behave is really determined by what we believe. We are people who believe that we've been made in the image of God and that the things that we do in life are meant to reflect this God that we believe we are made in the image of. I just want to look at one Old Testament passage before we get into this um, New Testament passage. I think you have a slide up there. Psalm 12 is a psalm that addresses our speech. And there's this contrast in Psalm 12, and it'll help us, I think, as we orient ourselves for this Ephesians passage. The contrast is between how people use speech and how God uses speech. So in Psalm 12, verses 2 and 4, the ones I've chosen from that text, shows people using speech just for personal gain, and this is the way, in the way of the world. We use our words to get what we want. So people in positions of power do this very well. 
We think of Hitler speaking loudly and demonstratively, a charismatic leader who firmly believed in his own words and he got the entire nation to believe a lie. We think of the used car salesman not really believing his own words, but hoping the buyer will be naive enough to believe him. We think of the employee flattering the boss to gain some extra points. So in the world, we use words really to get the thing that we want. And this contrasts then with God's words. In Psalm 12, it says, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground purified seven times. And that psalm says that in contrast to human speech, what we normally experience in the world, God's words are 100% pure. The idea here is that our motives are so mixed, it's impossible for us to really understand the purity of our own hearts and therefore our own speech. But there's one person, God himself, who can claim to be speaking with absolute purity, completely free from any other motives than speaking the truth in love. And what we believe about God and our relationship with God will entirely determine how we live our lives in this world. The way we talk is rooted in our relationship with God and what we believe about Him. So that first half of Ephesians describes God's grace given to undeserving people like us. And now Paul talks about that grace working its way out through our attitudes, our behaviors, and our relationships. Everything in our lives, every, as, as, as we've gotten to know Christ, everything in our lives is meant to reflect the God in whose image we have been made and remade. In the very first chapter of the Bible, God speaks, and then all of this happens, this thing called life. God speaks, and He gives life. Proverbs has a verse that says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. He's also given us this power with our words to be able to give life to other people or to kill them. When I was growing up, I grew up in a Baptist church. Nothing against Baptists. I love the Baptists. I'm, I'm not one, haven't been one since, but I grew up in a Baptist church. And um, as I was growing up in church, I wasn't a great Christian kid, so probably this isn't the fault of the church, probably my fault. But all I learned about speech were the things that I couldn't say. I couldn't say, the, there were the bad words I couldn't say, right? And there were some words that were bad and some words that were really, really bad. So you shouldn't say the bad words, but you really couldn't say the really bad words. And my mom wouldn't even allow us to say euphemisms of the bad words. So we couldn't say heck and darn in our family. So if she knew that I was saying those words today in church, she'd be mortified. But Paul begins here, Paul talks here about our speech not with, or the biblical view of speech is not so much a constraint on what we, should say, on what we shouldn't say, but an incentive to what we should say. And where Paul begins at Ephesians is not with the morality of swearing or cursing, but by the power of words in our relationships. God's first concern with our mouths, with our speech, is not so much an individual moral one, but he's concerned about us giving life to other people. Language is completely for the purpose of relationship. One of my roles uh, has been for the last while is to spend time with new missionaries who are on the field who are trying to learn a new language. And something I tell them over and over again is language is for relationship. Doesn't matter how many classes you've been to, how many textbooks you've worked through, the question is how many friends have you made in that place that you're at? Can you talk to them? As a Canadian, I was given the privilege as a, in growing up through school of learning French or studying French 
through school. I passed all my courses, did lots of textbooks, went, to, went through classes. Ask me how many French-speaking relationships I have. I cannot say more than one sentence in French. Language is for relationship. The word communication is related to the words communion and community. So in our communication, it's to foster communion within the community that we've been placed. So as a follower of Christ, made in the image of God, now we are all life givers, potential life givers. So what Paul does here in Ephesians is he gives us three criteria for our speech, and I just want to put these before us today to think about. All the words that come out of our mouths, I want to say this very clearly, all the words that come out of our mouths must pass these three criteria. The first is this, truthful. Verses 25 to 28. Let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor, with his neighbor. I moved to Hong Kong in 1981, and then I moved to Beijing in 2007. And so I've been in the Chinese world for, for quite a while. And, uh, but when I first came, it would, always, it would surprise me when people would just come up to me and say, you're fat. And they hardly even knew me, but they would just say, you are fat. Of course, in my country, it's a, a big insult. Now, it was probably true in my case. You didn't have to be Chinese to realize it. <laughs> but we all have certain cultural conventions for how we handle the truth. I remember one time saying to this lady who just said that I was obese, um, said, don't you know that hurts the feelings of a Westerner? And she said, well, can't Westerners accept reality? <laughs> this command to speak the truth to our neighbor isn't a license to say anything we want that we think is a fact. Uh, you have a really ugly haircut, or your children are horrible, or your mother's not real bright. Those things might be true in some ways, but they're better left unsaid. Paul uses this phrase, speak truthfully to a neighbor. He borrows it actually from Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. And if you want to jot that down, you could look at it later and see the context. Zechariah 8, 16, where that Old Testament prophet tells the people of God that they need to repent to avoid God's wrath, and the first point of repentance is telling the truth so that you can foster a community of mutual trust. This word truth, we're looking at it first, appears three times in Ephesians 4. So I just want to look at the three times. The first time is in 4.15, where Paul says we are to speak the truth in love. And then 21, the truth is in Jesus. But in 4.15, no, go ahead to the next one we just went to, I think. No, no, go back now. You, I don't know what happened there, sorry. My fault. Go back to the one with the nice red arrows. There we go. Uh, we translate this word, speaking the truth, is usually in English. Uh, it, the English translators usually do it this way because they don't really know what to do with this Greek word. The, the, it's a form of, the, 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 what, the, what Paul did is he turned this word truth into a verb. And so it's more accurately translated truthing in love. So it's more about holding to the truth as I'm in relationship with you than it is about saying something to you in chapter 4, 415. It's about being in the truth in love, holding to the truth in love, truthing in love in my relationship with you. And then the second one is in 421, where he says that the truth is in Jesus. So truth is not first a matter of words, but it's a matter of who we are as people. Jesus is the truth, and He has shaped us in the truth because we are in Him. Truth is entirely relational. 
In the Old Testament, there's two big words that describe God and his covenant. These words are chesed and emet. Chesed is the unconditional, undying love of God. Emet is truth. And it's a word that describes God as a completely reliable person. There's no way he will ever disappoint you. And God is the epitome of chesed, unconditional love, and the epitome of emet, completely faithful and true. So it's with that in mind that we speak the truth to one another, the first criteria about truth. The truth by which we have been formed, the truth that comes from Jesus, the truth that is in Jesus, that truth that comes out of our mouths in our relationship with one another is that truth. We have learned in Ephesians, if you read the first half of Ephesians, we've learned that the language of the kingdom of God is all about his grace, God pouring out his grace to us undeserving people. And so we've learned from him that we no longer use words to get what we want, to get other people to do what we want for them, but we use it for the same purpose as God uses his words, to give life to others. One of the great gifts of being part of the church, because we don't get this in the world, one of the great gifts of being part of the church is that we have here in a community who will give us life, people who will give us life with their words. In 25 to 27 of Ephesians 4, notice a few things that Paul says about this truth. He says we're to speak the truth to our neighbor, not about our neighbor. We've been formed in the truth. Now, there's two basic truths that we see in Ephesians that I just want to remind us of that should form our language that we use with each other. First is this, you and I are made and remade in the image of God. We're valued by him so much that he would sacrifice what was most important for our sake. And the second truth is that I, am the, not, I not you, am the greatest of sinners. And those two truths should determine much of what we say to each other. First is this, I have been made in the image of God. I've been loved by God to a degree that I can't even fathom. And for that reason, and so have you. And so for that reason, like Robin, you, you actually preached this already this morning. For that reason, my negative perspectives on you are largely untrue. They're not formed in the truth. If I am unable to see your inherent value, if I can only see your flaws, the problem is entirely with my eyes. And it means I'm not living in the truth. And therefore, words should not come out of my mouth. But if I'm in the truth... If I see you for who you are as a valuable person, loved by the Father, called by Jesus, gifted by the Holy Spirit, then my words will reflect that most deep truth. That's Paul's message to the Ephesian church. So when he starts talking to them about their speech with one another, speak the truth to one another, it's this truth that they've been shaped in. But the second truth is also important, that you and I are both sinners. But I am more, of, more a sinner than you are. So sin and, dis and failure should be part of our vocabulary as well as we speak the truth to each other. But if I talk more about your sin than mine, it also means I failed to be living in the truth. If your sin ever becomes more obvious to me than mine is, it means I'm inspecting specks rather than sealing, seeing the log in my eye. So our truth should also include the confession of sin to one another and the confronting of sin in each other. But confession precedes confronting because it's a greater reality, a greater need than confrontation. 
Speaking truth to our neighbor means that we can address our sins to each other. I don't know if you heard this, and we should have that safety in our community. This should be a safe community where we can do that. I don't know if you heard that story of these four pastors who were meeting together for an accountability group, and the first one, um, they'd been met together, but they hadn't really shared much deep, uh, deep insight or deep info about each other. And one day they were meeting, and the first pastor took a breath, and he said, well, you know, guys, there's a sin that's been bothering me for a long time. I haven't told anybody, but I, I actually have a drinking problem. That was Tom, by the way. And um, <laughs> just, just joking, Tom. Nice to see you again, brother. And uh, the other three could hardly believe it. And, but a second was encouraged by his friends, uh, what he shared. And he said, well, actually, I've been a closet smoker for the past four years. And the other th others gasped. And then one shifted in his seat, and he spoke up. And he said, well, actually, I've been pilfering from the Sunday offering. And all of them were shocked, and the fourth one hadn't said anything, and they finally, they were coaxing him to actually open up about himself, and he said, well, actually, my biggest problem is that I can't stop gossiping. <laughs> when Paul says here we should speak the truth with our neighbor, he's offering us this opportunity partly to bring closure to our sin. And what gossip does when we share the insights that others share with us about themselves is we're, bringing, we're, we're, we're uh, perpetuating that sin. So speaking the truth to our neighbor about our neighbor and about ourselves brings health to the body. Speaking truthfully about our neighbor, by the way, makes the body sick. And we in the community, in the community in which gossip and slander are present will be a really sick family. Maybe you've experienced that. It's probably close to death. So we speak the truth to our neighbor, not about our neighbor. Secondly, we... I think there's another slide there. Another one. Go ahead. I've already gone past those. So. Uh, we speak the truth because we're members of one another. It literally reads, members of one another. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul had used this uh, metaphor of a body. And um, this last year, Joy, you know, two years ago, Joy started going to a Chinese medicine doctor in Hong Kong. We'd never done that before. And uh, she had a cough, an unbearable cough, Been saw many Western medicine doctors over years, couldn't get better, kept coughing, keeping her up all night, keeping me up all night. So she finally went to a Chinese medicine doctor, and this doctor lady uh, talked to her about mother kidney and daughter lung and all these parts of the body, because in her mind, everything is related. <laughs> so for us in Western medicine, it's all, it's all separate. You know, we have the specialist who takes care of the heart and the brain and the lungs and all these different parts of the body. But in Chinese medicine, they see the whole thing, the, the body as a, a, an entire unit. And I like that because that's kind of what Paul is addressing or with this Im imagery of the body, what's he saying about the church. The church is this related body, so one part is definitely going to affect the other. And that's why we speak the truth with each other, because of our deep connection with Jesus, who is the truth in our body. If I persist in my sin and you know about it, it's only going to spread to the body. It's going to hurt the body. So I'm not just hurting myself, I'm hurting others. And third, in this exhortation about speaking truthfully, Paul brings up the issue of anger. He says, be angry, but do not sin. Sounds almost like a command, but it's not really. Some people call this righteous indignation. A few verses later, Paul's going to say in verse 31, put away all anger in the community. 
But here he uses these words, be angry, do not sin. He takes them from Psalm chapter 4, words that David used. And David used these words to address his men, uh, men when he said, don't sin, sin out of your anger. Instead, lay down on your bed, search your hearts, and trust in God. And what he does there is he recognizes the presence of anger, but he tells them to not act from their anger. And here Paul addresses that to their speech. Almost all anger that we experience, that we feel, is selfish. I believe that's true. I believe that almost all anger that we feel is a selfish anger. We talk about righteous indignation. We want to have this, ra this righteous indignation against ISIS and all these people. But on a daily basis, probably almost all anger that we feel is based in us not getting our own way, like in Jonah chapter 4 when the plant died. And I see this anger arising in my heart when I'm driving, when I'm walking, when I'm sitting at home with my family. And my anger usually has very little to do with the truth that's in Jesus and much to do with me not getting my own way. And what I've learned is that the words that follow from my anger, whether spoken or texted or emailed, do not produce life. God's desire is to give life through speech. In your anger, do not sin. Okay, so that's the first point. The point about being, first criteria is being truthful. The other two aren't going to take so long. The second one is about life-giving. Second criteria, criteria number two, life-giving. He says, no, let no corrupting, corrupting talk come out of your mouths. So I put the Greek word there. This word for corrupting is the word sarpos, and it means rancid or putrid. It's like that tuna sandwich that fell behind your fridge accidentally and was left there for two weeks before you started to smell something strange, or that rat that might have died under your cupboard. So if you can smell that sandwich or that rat in your mind, in your imagination, this is the word corrupt. It's what it means. It's a word that means rotten, kind of like gangrene, that will infect others. If you eat that two-week-old tuna sandwich, you could very well die. And the unwholesome word destroys the person who receives it. So what Paul does here is he contrasts that word sarpos with a word for building. He says, only speak words that are good for building up as fits the occasion, so that it might give what? Grace to those who hear it. So that corrupting word, the tuna sandwich word, says, what's wrong with you? But the word that builds up says, let me tell you some good things I see in you. The corrupting word says, you really blew it that time, and leaves it at that. The word that builds up says, I'm on your side, and let's try again. The corrupting word says that guy's never going to amount to much. And the word that builds up says that guy was chosen by God before the foundation of the world. See, the choice before us is always there. To destroy with unwholesome speech, to corrupt, to end life by living in the lies of the world, or to build with beneficial speech by dwelling in the truth of Jesus. Life and death. Proverbs says, are in the power of the tongue. A few years ago, some psychologists um, studied couples. I tell the couples I do marriage, pre-marriage counseling for this, this story. They studied couple, couples over the first decade of marriage, and what their aim was to try to determine factors that would ultimately lead to failed marriages or successful marriages. And one of the things they found was the importance of put-downs in a relationship. So they found that among newlyweds who prosper, only five out of a hundred things they said to each other were put-downs. But those who would later split up 
10 out of every statements were insults. And they found that over these 10 years, as they tracked with these couples, those who excelled in put-downs, at least 10%, increased as the years went on. And here's what they said as the result uh, um, in, in their study. Hostile put-downs act as a cancerous cells that, if unchecked, erode relationships over time. In the end, relentless, unremitting negativity takes control, and the couple can't get through a week without major blow-ups. At the beginning of the Bible story, God took a man and he took a woman, and he put them together, and he pronounced that they are one. So inside a marriage, if that's really true, if inside of a marriage I put down my wife, I'm actually putting down myself, I'm harming myself. And Paul applies that exact same principle here in Ephesians when he says that when we put down one another in the church, that corrupting speech, we're actually grieving the Holy Spirit. And this word grieve means to pain. It's like taking a knife and stabbing it in someone. The word that I speak in the context of God's community where the Holy Spirit dwells, based in the truth of Jesus, is a sword that stabs the Spirit of God. Proverbs had also said, reckless words pierce like a sword. We feel those words. God feels those words. My mom used to say something to me when I was growing up. I used to think it was in the Bible, and then I found out it wasn't. It was, when you keep silent, you look like a fool, and when you open your mouth, you prove it. <laughs> but when our thoughts are negative, silence is the best option. It really is the best option. Our words are not going to be life-giving. Finally, the third criteria, as we wrap up, is loving. In this last section, we're taught to put away the attitudes that lead to destruction and instead act like God has acted towards us. Paul uses here five anti-God words. He tells us to put these things off on our journey with Christ. Five things to watch in ourselves and our community that we can try to get rid of. And these words are bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander. I always remember those words for their acronym BWACS, B-W-A-C-S, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander. Look for those words in our lives and our community. Paul says, put them off as we relate to each other. And then twice in this, last pa in this passage we're looking at, Paul says to treat others in the way that God has treated us. Verse 31, forgive, he says, as Christ has forgiven you. And then in chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love as Christ has loved us. So I go back to what I said at the beginning as we come to an end. Our speech is to entirely be a reflection of God who is love. So here again, we have to go back to where we stand before God. Wretched sinners though we are, but completely and absolutely loved by Him. Unconditional love, and that is fully true. God didn't just make up a story to make this true. It is fully true to Him. So we paraphrase this scripture regarding love. We speak because God first speaks to us. Have you listened to God speaking over you? Have you heard the words of God speaking directly to your souls?
because that is the most life-impacting and life-giving speech of all. The Word of Christ has authority over everything in this world. When he was in that storm, remember in the story, he got, out of, he got up on the boat and he said, peace be still and everything quieted down. The winds and the waves quieted, quieted down. When a man came to him with an incurable disease, Jesus just simply said, be clean, and his skin became normal. When two men came to Jesus with thousands of demons attaching themselves to them, he said one word, just one word, go, and the demons left. There's one gospel story where Jesus says, well, there's actually two gospel stories where he says this, but one in particular where he says these words, your sins are forgiven. Now, we believe it. We probably said yes to that and passed our baptism test. Have you heard Jesus speak those words to you? Your sins are forgiven. And do you hear him speak those words to you daily? Have you really heard them deep within your soul? It is the most important life-transforming word that will ever be spoken to us. Your sins are forgiven. Have you found hope in your hopelessness simply by hearing Jesus speak to you? He says to every day, he'll say to my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. The truth is in Jesus. Our mouths will be formed by our ears. Just as little kids learn to speak a language by listening to those around them, we learn the language of the kingdom by listening to the voice of the king. We have to hear him. That king who accepts us, loves us, forgives us unconditionally. He found us as lost sheep. He carried us in his arms. He speaks tenderly to us. And then we're told, be imitators of God as beloved children. May God give us the grace to give life to each other in this room and to give life in a world where we see so much death all around us through speech. May he give us the grace this week to truly reflect him as we're in Jesus the truth. Let's pray. Thank you so much, God, for the gift of language, the gift of speech that we have. This is where before the Lord this morning, as we think about our use of words, we just take some time to confess to Him, to walk in repentance if you've observed that your own speech hasn't fit the criteria of the kingdom. God knows we're so imperfect. So for all of us, our God, we thank you for this gift of speech. We ask that in our families and our friendships, in this community of the church, and then as we go into engage with those who don't know you in the world, we ask for your particularly deep grace to remember where we're situated, that we are really in Christ, to be formed in Christ, and then to let our words reflect that. Help us, God. So often we forget. So often we're impetuous. But help us, we ask. 
But more than anything, Father, we thank you for your deep and rich and unending grace. We'll blow it this week, we know. But thank you, God, that you're going to be faithful to us as you always have been. May you be glorified in our lives and in this world, now and forever. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.